0: Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Is There Objective Morality? Why then, tis none to you, for there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, said Hamlet in the middle of Act Two. Now this particular quote should make us pause for a moment, because a mere act later, Hamlet has his famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, in which he is wrestling with a very important question. Should I commit suicide and end all of this, or is there something better to which I should keep my life? This particular connection of phrases from the play Hamlet is what I use to characterize our modern society and set a tone for this particular question. Do we not still struggle with the same issue Hamlet did? Is morality just simply a product of my imagination, or a product of society? Or is there something bigger that is it is calling us towards, to which Hamlet would then reflect? I? Can I kill myself? What can I do? These questions plague our society in many ways, as we wrestle with the implications of one particular morality versus another, or one person saying something right and another saying it is wrong. These issues are at the core of this particular question. Is there objective morality? To begin with, I want to address the first question of this particular topic, which is, what is morality? This is a very important question, and one that is not well understood throughout most of the literature, in that we can look at it a couple different ways. Some people see morality as something of itself. Others link it very strongly with ethicality and look at right behavior in a general sense from an external force. What really defines morality is the question what governs right and wrong, good and bad? Does something govern it at all? Or is it something of its own? Something to which we ascribe to it but don't really add anything to it? So let me start with a a a thought experiment for you. Think of it this way. If we think of morality as a set of objective rules, that means clear specific rules that all people would, if they understood it, would ascribe to, that govern right behavior, then there are three possible outcomes from this particular way of living. First, if all people were moral, that means everyone followed the moral law, and the moral law was the same for all people, and all people understood it, then we would all act and behave the exact same way. Kind of sounds like a robot theory in some ways, where we're programmed to be a certain way, and therefore, since everyone has the same programming or the same rules, we're kind of stuck in this conundrum where if we truly are moral, there is no change. The second one. We should eventually agree on how a person should react in a given situation through reason. If morality is truly objective, then we have the power to reason to it, since it's not based on my subjective reality or what I think the world should be, but it's a principle beyond all of that. And if we all sat down and really reasoned through it, worked through it logically, we would figure out the moral laws or the moral principles to which we all need to ascribe. Third, moral laws would not be contradictory. If they truly are laws and govern right behavior, there is no contradiction. We would know exactly what to do in every situation without fault. I argue that we have a few problems with all three of these outcomes. They don't seem to match quite with our experience of what it means to behave rightly in our society or to do what's well. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean by this. A man stole a loaf of bread from the store... The act of stealing in most cultures is considered wrong or immoral, and therefore this man's behavior would be considered immoral. Now let's color the picture a little bit more. Let's say he stole the loaf of bread because his family was starving. And even to make this more specific, let's say his family was starving and there is no other way for them to get food except for him to steal. So that he has two options, either steal the loaf of bread, which is immoral, or Let his family die, which, if you're thinking in the line of he has an obligation to provide for his family, would also be considered immoral. We're left in a situation in which two actions are both immoral and neither of them can be done without the other one being the consequence of it. He's stuck in a conundrum. Let me try another thought experiment with you, another scenario. A woman is a cashier at a grocery store. The rules for this particular grocery store indicate that she is supposed to be pleasant and kind to the people who come. On this particular day, she is not feeling very well, so her kind, pleasant demeanor that normally shows wonderfully in her work is much diminished. Is this immoral? These are very important questions for us to ponder. And as we begin to ponder them, I want to make a division between some things as we go a little bit further that kind of colors the experience of human, human behavior in general. So on one level, we have morality, which is really the topic of this conversation. Morality, as I'm going to define it for this, as we try and strive for, is there objective morality or is it purely subjective? I'm defining morality as a set of laws that govern all peoples, times, places, circumstances, and cultures. This means that all people, if they figured out what the moral law would be, would be bound to follow it. These laws would not be contradictory, but they would be set and confirmed. This is the way to act in society. Underneath the idea of morality, I'm going to add the topic of ethicality. Ethicality is different than morality, and that is not based on moral principles or laws that govern all people's times and places. Instead, ethicality is focused primarily on a situation or a set of circumstances in which a person is bound by external laws, something given by another person, and then bound to follow. Don't worry if this is complicated. Give me one moment to explain the next level, and then we can move forward with some examples. Final level is called appropriateness. It is for those circumstances in which it just doesn't fit the other two. The moral law is not broken, or there's no moral law that seems to govern this. There's no external rules to which the person is bound to follow, but yet it just seems weird. This isn't what is normal behavior in this circumstance. And we have another way to describe it, called appropriateness. So let's Bring these three into some examples to help guide your attention as to why I am picking to differentiate morality in this way, and then we'll kind of come back around. Let's take the situation of the woman who is a cashier at the grocery store. Let's say the woman decides that she is going to have a lengthy conversation with every person who comes in her line. Does her job description say, please don't have conversations with the the customers? Absolutely not. Conversely, if she's going to be kind and courteous and meet the needs of these people, she's going to have to start some sort of conversation. But in this particular situation, she is deciding to have lengthy conversations. And as this conversation ensues, the people who are further in line get more and more irritated. They don't want that conversation. They want to get through the line. The external rules that govern her job do not indicate that this is wrong. This would actually be considered somewhat appropriate. But because of the length of the conversation and how it's affecting the other people, in this particular situation, this is considered inappropriate behavior. It doesn't match the circumstances. If we go up one level and now use that as an understanding to help us understand ethicality, ethicality would then be those external rules that apply to the person and tell them how to behave in a certain circumstance. So in this particular situation, the woman, who is a cashier, who has laws governing how that particular store wants to operate, namely, that they want to encourage kind, courteous behavior and really respect the customers that come through. That particular day, she is feeling down and doesn't feel like she has the energy to fulfill that particular part of her job description. Therefore, she is going against the normal behavior set by the company which is now an unethical situation. Yes, I get it. It's hard for her. We get it. We move on. But, nevertheless, to describe the situation and the behavior of this woman, we have to look at what's grounding her behavior, and that is the ethical rules set by that company. Now, if we go up one level further to morality, this idea that there are principles, laws, that govern everything for every person, time, place, and circumstance— Does that apply in her situation? Does her not feeling the energy to be positive and outgoing and kind and courteous to the customers that come, is that a product of moral law? I argue no. That's a product of that particular store. Another store down the street could decide, we don't care about that, get the customers through as fast as you can, and make sure to sell as many products as you can. Therefore, the idea of being kind and courteous to a person as a cashier does not apply in all situations. Therefore, it would not be a moral law. Going back to the example of the man stealing bread, in a a level of appropriateness, I don't know if it really applies in this case. Is it appropriate to steal? No, it's never really appropriate to take someone else's stuff. We have a, a concept in our society that it's not free for everyone. We just take what we need but more of this is property and therefore the appropriate ways of following laws in this particular society is that is not yours, don't take it. So first of all, it's inappropriate. On an ethical level, should he be stealing? Well, he's locked in a number of conundrums. On an ethical level, he has to provide for his family. Those are the external laws given by society. If you have a family, you are in charge of them. Otherwise, they'll be taken from you. So he has that obligation to follow his fa- to take care of his family, and that's not being followed for whatever reason. The law that governs the rest of it would be stealing. Can he steal, or is the law governing the protection of his family more important? We don't know. And this is where things get really dicey. And that's why this question is so very important. When you look at morality, and especially objectivity of morality, these three things color things in such a way where, if there are moral principles out there, moral laws, which govern every time, place, person, circumstances, they cannot be broken unless we become immoral. Now, conversely, if morality becomes subjective, it's based on my perception of things, or the culture's perception of things, the laws we set, and there are no objective moral laws, then we can collapse morality and and ethicality to one concept and basically would say all morality is based on the external laws given by some other source, society, government, people, company, whatever, that then I am bound to follow. Okay. I'll give you a moment to digest that before we go even further. So then the next big thing we have to wrestle with is what do we mean by moral good or moral bad? What is good and bad? It's a very tricky and important question, and one that's gotten a lot of attention, but also one that we don't have a lot of answers for. So let me start with some ideas and concepts, and we'll kind of go through examples to give us a sense of what is meant by good, bad, right, and wrong. As our world becomes more globalized and we recognize the differences in cultures, we also recognize that we all don't agree on what is good, bad, right, wrong, just, unjust. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, I was at a Japanese art exhibit in Portland, Oregon, and one particular piece of art caught my attention. It was a series of panels that formed kind of one of those walls that is characteristic of Japanese culture. And in each of these panels, it told a story. It told the story of a man who had recently married this woman, and they found out that she was pregnant. In his excitement, he was ready to provide for his newly-fledging family. But then, once the child was born, he made a realization. He does not have the financial stability to take care of both the child and his elderly parents, who are now ailing in health and need his support. So what he decides to do is he decides to kill the child. And after killing the child and digging a hole to bury it, In the bottom of this hole, he finds a treasure chest full of gold. And out of great joy, he realizes that he did the right thing. He was supposed to provide for his parents over the needs of his newly fudged family. To our westernized ears, this sounds very weird. Uh, It's okay to kill a child for the sake of your parents? And that's a good thing? This is where cultures are in in, in conflict with each other. Where we're wrestling with the idea of what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. So let's get it. come back to a very simple example of what I mean by all of this. So let's start out with the example of this. A man stole a piece of bread from the store. As he's running down the street, a woman cries out, He is stealing! That is wrong! What do we do? The same situation is presented to both of them, and they have a very different perspective on that situation. The man... In general, we're going to say that he thinks it's right because he did it. Whether he thinks it's truly right or not, it's a totally different question. To really get a sense of what I mean by this, he has to think that it's right and a good practice for him to steal where the woman thinks, no, that is immoral. How do we deal with the conflict? This is called individual moral relativism. It's a situation where the facts are not the same. We can't agree on the facts. The fact of, is stealing right or is stealing wrong, or is this stealing, is the central core of that particular problem. So, we have two options with this. We can either say it's completely subjective, and it's based on those two persons' interpretations. Therefore, whatever they decide is the way we go, and both go home happy, realizing, yay, we've talked about this, and we agreed to, that we are both just different. Wait a minute. Does that really work? Can we really get to a point where two people who are in completely disagreement with each other would agree to disagree and walk away from a situation where morality is the action? Think of it this way. This is broadening it quite extremely. But in Nazi Germany, we had the situation where the Nazis felt that the Jews should be exterminated, where the Western world, the other countries, felt that the Jews should be kept alive. How do we resolve that conflict? That is the ultimate question. If both of those people, the man who stole the the stuff from the store and the woman who called out that that's a wrong action, were to sit down and have, have a conversation, if they were to be able to make a conclusion that one action or the other is moral versus the other one being immoral, would that imply that by reason alone we could reach some greater conclusion than we could before? If it is possible for these two people to sit down and have a conversation where they agree at the end that one action is right over the other, haven't we reached a conclusion? What is the basis for that? How do we understand the core value that something here is different? Something here is guiding the people to a better action or more good. Let's advance it a little further. So, we can... As our com- uh, world gets more globalized, we get into the situation where cultures start to meet each other and moral ideas come in conflict. For example, there's a, a tribe in Africa who believes that a girl needs to have sex with a the tribal elder before she can be married. Otherwise, she's a disgrace to the tribe. To our Western ears, this is just unfathomable. Isn't this child sexual abuse? Those are two fundamentally different ideas of what is going on, or different ideas on how people should behave in a society. How do we deal with this conflict? This is called cultural relativism, and what it means is that the two cultures don't agree on the facts of the situation, much like the individual moral relativism of a moment ago. How do we resolve this? Can we sit down, just like the other situation, and have a reasonable argument um, discussion, and eventually come to a conclusion? If we come to a conclusion, is that conclusion more true or less true? Does that mean there's a better action and a less good action? If there's a better action, does that mean there's something more good that we should be striving for? This leads us to the next big topic. What do we mean by good, bad, right, and wrong? So really what's at the core of this particular question is, is there an objective good Or is it truly subjective good? I was listening to a a commentator on this topic a moment ago who postulated this that in the, the topic of morality, good and bad are simply defined by what the culture thinks of as good or bad. The word good itself has no reference of its own to something external, something of its own, something that's real, exists out there. Instead, it's really a concept we use to describe something so we know what we're talking about. It's a linguistic thing. Is this really the case? What if we define good in this way? Good is that which unifies and brings to wholeness. Okay. There are examples of this. In any form of life, may it be a plant or an animal, the organs and the entirety of the animal work to sustain life in that animal, to the point where, as long as the organs continue to do their job, and they continue to function as normal, they keep the unity of the creature. The animal survives and life continues because everything is kept in that wholeness, in that unity. At the moment that something breaks down, such as a organ fails or a disease comes up, the unity is destroyed or diminished to an extent, and therefore the animal has trouble keeping alive. Now, each animal continues to sur- thrive and survive because it values life. It wants to keep living, and it keeps trying to procreate and keep the that particular species going. Every animal strives for this. So there seems to be, in the very nature of life, a unity or a wholeness that everything strives for. Even in the cosmos, if we look to the universe itself, there's kind of a harmony or a unity to things there, where everything is kept in its balance as the laws of physics keep everything in its structure and its form, letting everything kind of be. So then, If these things are not based on my human concept, but are actually something out there, then that means good is objective. You could easily argue and say that those things are just the way I interpret them, and therefore it's subjective still. Therefore good is based on my interpretation of things. But ultimately, I don't control life. I don't control whether an animal keeps its unity. I don't even control whether things keep in their motion. I am just analyzing what I see. Therefore, I am calling what I see something to which I can refer to with others. There seems to be a unity to all things, things tend towards a wholeness, things tend towards the good. In that way, good is not just my perspective on things, but it's now a concrete reality. I can't point to it as though good is walking down the street and I say, "Look, there is good to which I'm referring," but good is a way of describing the con- the the reality to which I'm experiencing just like bad would be the opposite. Bad is that which tends toward discord or disharmony, and therefore when things start to break down, or things start to break from that unity, or cause dissension, this is where I would see the bad. If we take this concept of good and bad and apply it back to our concept of morality, it gives us this, that morality now is any particular law or set of laws that govern what it means to be good, what it means to strive for unity and wholeness, Therefore, anything that is moral would strive for that good, and anything that is immoral would go against it towards the bad. Therefore, we can reason up to moral principles, moral laws, just by stating this. Does it lead me to good, and does it lead our society to good, and is the good the greater good or just a lesser good? And if it leads to the greatest good of full unity and wholeness, therefore, this would be a moral law. That's nice and all, but it's far more complicated than that. And this is why it's so complicated, because although that's nice, we need a way to talk about it in the same way so that we are talking about the same basic foundation for morality. And therefore, I want to bridge off into a tangent for a moment and talk about ways that we have as a a society tried to find a grounding for morality, try to find some sure foundation from which we can build up to moral laws or address whether there can be moral laws. Some of these which span the entirety of human existence in some level are important to play with some of them will not be very helpful to us The first one I want to mention is called Nicomachean ethics It was developed by the Greeks in the uh, first 2 centuries of the uh, before the common era The main notable ones are Aristotle and then Socrates Plato Nicoma- Nicomachean ethics is based on the idea of virtue Now a virtue is the good that falls between two extremes. Let me give you an example. The virtue of courage falls between between the two extremes of timidity and foolhardy. For example, if I am a soldier going to fight a war, and I realize that I'm the only one fighting against a thousand people, and I go, yes, let's do this, let's fight the war, I got this. Uh, no, you will not win. There's a thousand of you, them, and one of you. This is considered foolhardy and not virtuous. Conversely, if I'm a soldier and I've been training and working up to this and really striving to be a good soldier and be ready for battle, and with my 10,000 soldiers with me, we're going to invade a soldier, of a troop of 100, and I go, oh no, I don't think I can do this. They're going to outnumber me. They're far stronger than I am. Excuse me, 10,000 versus 100. That's a ratio of 1 to a 100. You're doing fine. This is called timidity. The middle extreme would be if I'm a soldier who's trained well and I'm ready for battle and with my 10,000 soldiers with me, I'm going to march against 1,000. We've calculated it well, we are ready, and I go and charge into battle. That would be a courageous action. It falls between the two extremes. That being said, virtue is always based on the situation and the person. It's weird to think that with virtuous behavior, we can't really call out whether someone is virtuous because it depends on that person. If we know them really, really well, maybe we could get close to it. But ultimately, virtuous behavior is grounded on that person and how they address the circumstances and the situation they are in. It really falls more into the realm of ethicality than morality, since there's no real laws that govern it. There's just this happy medium that we're all trying to reach as we reach wholeness and as we reach the fullness of who we are. That's the goal of virtue ethics. Ultimately, I don't think this gives us a grounding to talk about morality and especially objective morality, since it really doesn't have any objective side to it at all. It's purely subjective. The second, the second philosophical idea that I want to run by you is this one. It's called utilitarianism. It was created in the 20th century by two philosophers by the name of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mills. The system is very simple. It goes like this. We have a situation. We're trying to decide whether it's moral. We calculate how much pleasure or good will come out of it and how much pain or bad will come out of it. And if there's more pleasure, good, than there is pain, bad, then we do it. That's how it works. It can work for an individual. It can work for a culture. It can work for society. It can work for the globe. That's all we do, utilitarian calculus, measuring out the good to the bad, the pleasure to the pain. The difficulty is, it can move and shift as it wants. As my professor once said, if we decide as a society that eating babies is considered moral and brings the most pleasure, then that's what we should do. It's that simple. Utilitarianism doesn't really give us a foundation. It gives us ideas it works fairly well as far as a system for deciding between pleasure and pain and what seems to be the best that's about where it ends the next one is called deontological ethics also called rule-based ethics it is developed in the 18th century by a man by the name of immanuel kant kant set out to do something different he took this new realm of modern philosophy which decided to go on reason alone and he wanted to create a moral system that was stripped of any religious thoughts or concepts so that he could go down to a true foundation. What is the foundation of morality itself? So what he chose to do was try for reason alone. What this means is, if you can create a logical argument that proves that something would be immoral, then it would be immoral for all times, places, circumstances, and peoples since we should be able to agree that this particular logical framework that matches with a law is set. Let me give you a couple examples. His two primary examples are lying and killing. Lying. If I lie to my friend, he will distrust me. If he continues to distrust me, he will tell other people who will also distrust me, and therefore I will be distrusted, and the relationships between these people break down. Therefore, lying is immoral because it breaks down the relationships between people and leads to bad. Pretty simple. What about killing? If I kill someone, it harms the relationship between me and the person I killed. It also harms the relationship between me and their family, the family and the person who was killed. All this leads to a bad situation where many relationships are harmed. Therefore, killing is bad. This is where things get complicated. One of the prime ways in which people have tried to refute his logic or show some of the difficulties in it are this. Let's say I'm hiding Jews and the Nazi troops come to my door and say, are you hiding Jews in your basement? And I say, no, I have just lied. I cannot do that. That is immoral. I would have to tell them, yes, they are in the basement. But then they'll go and kill the Jews. Was that good or was that bad? According to Kant, you cannot lie. Therefore, that was a bad action to lie to the Nazis. This is where the rub happens. What do we do in these situations? The one advantage to it is that this particular system of looking at reason alone starts to get us out of this subjective mindset in that the, the logic that leads to that conclusion can be verified by any time, culture, people, and place. It's not bound by my subjective view, or my particular time period, but is broader than that. And it starts to let us get to the idea that maybe there is something out there that is more objective, and maybe there's a way we can get to it. The last system I want to talk about is not really a system. It's legal codes. A lot of legal codes give us laws and stuff that we must follow, such as the Constitution of the United States, which then governs right behavior in the United States or the rights of the people, what they are allowed to do. As long as this constitution remains firm, we have a foundation from which the laws are based, and we have a way to differentiate whether a law is just or unjust, or right for the people or wrong for the people. As long as it holds, we're good. The challenge comes when we decide to challenge that founding document and we challenge the foundation. Then what? That is a troubling question. The same type of concept works for religious laws. In religious laws, a deity gives laws to the people that they are bound to follow. If they don't follow the laws, then they are then either at the whim of the deity who can punish them or benefit them, depending on how you look at it. But then the real challenge comes when you look at divine laws in relation to how they change or develop. If divine laws are set for all time and eternity, how can they change or develop? What if a religious leader decides to go against another religious leader? What do we do then? Or even then, what do we do with laws that do not agree if there is only one God? How does that work? These are all questions and part of the problem. Now I want to come back to the real battle. The real problem of this entire question. Subjective versus objective. In the dialogue, Euthyphro, Socrates writes this, Is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? I'll repeat that. Is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? What Socrates is drawing our attention to is this. Is piety something out there to which the gods know they have to love it because it is out there and pious, or is the thing called pious loved because the gods love it, and therefore it's called pious? Therefore, is piety something objective, a reality out there to which the gods didn't love? Or is it subjective? It's based on their opinion of things and their outlook to which they love it because they have chosen to make it loved. This is the challenge of objectivity versus subjectivity. Do moral laws exist of their own out there as something that we can ascribe to by reason that's formed in the very fabric of the universe, or are they purely based on our interpretation of events, times, places, cultures, circumstances? If moral laws are based on objective principles, that means every person, time, place, and circumstance would be obliged to follow them. If, however, they are purely subjective, we now are in a situation where We will constantly be changing our moral framework, or what happens when they come in to challenge one another, such as different cultures. Which is why this question is so important. As kind of summarizing some of these points and bringing it back to its core, I want to look at the importance of the good. As I mentioned a while ago, the good as a subjective principle, that is based on what we think is good for this time, place, and circumstance, lends us to a subjective morality that really what we define as good and bad is what we think of right now and for this circumstance. Whereas, what that ends up leading us to is constant division and discussion as to what is moral. Can we really decide if something is truly moral? Or is it just, this is what is good for now? But, someone may disagree, and then we have a disagreement, and then we have to figure out how to resolve the disagreement, and we're back in the conundrum of individual moral relativism. Is it relative to what I think? Or is there something greater? Now, if good is something out there, if good is either an intrinsic principle to the universe, not a thing of itself, but a principle that guides all things on earth, that what it does is it unifies and brings wholeness to all things, either life or not living, and then it also has a directionality to it, that everything tends to a unity at one point in time, kind of like the Big Bang was a unity. If everything tends towards that unity, we can also address whether things help towards that unity or hinder it, as long as that good remains objective. As long as we can say, yes, there is clearly a striving of all things towards that unity. Now we have both reason and a principle to go off of. The principle is, if it's good, then it means it tends towards unity and it tends towards wholeness. Therefore, I can use Reason to guide me to recognize whether that thing is actually leading to the good or leading away from it towards the bad, whether it's leading to wholeness or leading away from it. We can be wrong, which is where the discussion comes in. Is this more or less towards the good, or do we need to reevaluate this claim? Which is where we have a discussion and we can reach a conclusion. That's the joy of an objective good. We actually can reach a conclusion. There is something out there that relates to that good. It's not just me anymore. Us discussing and ruminating and deciding what the conclusion should be is striving for that good. As long as that good is out there, objective, and it can be discovered, we can find the moral laws. And therefore, morality would be objective. That doesn't solve the issue. That just adds to the color. Now, if morality is out there and something we can discover, that means we have laws and principles we are bound to obey. But I don't want to leave a point I started a while ago. Even if we found the moral laws that govern all time, circumstances, places, it doesn't fit the full human existence, the full experience of what it means to be human now. There are things that the laws will give us and prescribe to us, and there are things that they won't. That's where if morality is objective, we can find the moral laws, they are governing all things. There's also an ethicality. There are laws that are external to us that are situational, and there's also appropriateness. Those two then color the whole realm of morality that then leave us with this situation in which we are allowed to live out our humanity and strive for good and constantly work at it as a process, not as a set of laws or rules to which we become robots and we just do what we are programmed to do. Instead, we are now constantly reflecting. We're constantly working to find the good and to find what brings us to unity and wholeness. If morality is objective, and I argue that it is, we can achieve wholeness and unity by striving for what is good and striving for what brings us to that unity and wholeness. And it's both collective and individual and brings us to a whole new way of living that opens up the whole human possibility to something wonderful and massive. We strive to become whole. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now you know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan. Written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show.